0: I think it must have been Mecca, the feeling, unusual I mean, feeling. Like such appreciation for the Sangha. And I'm looking around here, you know, half the people in here are really good friends. All of you are really dedicated practitioners. I feel like we could just all take turns giving the Dhamma talk, and it feels like such a privilege. And when we were chanting the refuges and precepts, I just was flashing on how that's been going on for twenty six hundred years, just like that. And you know there's a saying that if ever for it's a saying, that if there was ever one moment where no one was practicing the Buddha sasan in the world it would go out of existence. Not the truth, but the Buddha's teaching. And so that actively with us sitting here practicing and you know, committing to the precepts, the refuges, really, we're like I don't know, I just flashed back on all the nuns chanting in Burma and this feeling of it's the same as it's been for 2,600 years and how we're all part of that. And I don't know, somehow my heart just felt really full. And I wanted to share it with you all because sometimes you can forget that just sitting here slogging through the day. But it's a beautiful thing you're all doing. Well, those of you who were here last week, remember I was speaking about Sakaya Ditti, personality view, personality belief. Really, my focus last week was in how our sense of self is constructed moment to moment by uh, how we cling to views, to constructions, thoughts, beliefs that are based on Clinging to any aspect of nama rupa, right? Any aspect of mind or body experience, because we perceive it inaccurately, right? Because we perceive the permanent and what is impermanent. We cling to an aspect of the aggregates of nama rupa and construct a whole sense of self moment after moment. Why couldn't I have said it that quickly last week? Um, and I would just ended by saying how that it 's cut through by the deep and transformative perception of impermanence of anicca, right? that that cuts through with Sakaya ditti clinging to views tonight I want to talk about um, another another aspect of practice that It's very basic, I mean, you all know this, but it's another way that we can focus that helps us, well, it's another avenue of seeing through the delusion that keeps creating a sense of self. And it's very simple, it's rather than view the first step of the Eightfold Path, it's wise intention, the second step, attitude. In specific, the attitude of renunciation. But first, I want to say that this sense of clinging to a sense of self, of creating or of somehow just having a sense of self, is so subtle at times. I mean, sometimes it's really gross, but it's so subtle and it pervades through all levels of our experience. This isn't to be discouraging, I actually found this rather encouraging. Because sometimes people think, well, I should, you know, I should see through these views. Why do I keep having a sense of self? It's enough already. But elimination, and even that, elimination of complete belief in Sakaya Ditti, which in itself seems like that would be huge, but the elimination of the belief in Sakaya Ditti does not completely remove the sense of personal identity. In fact. I want to read you from the Sutta. I want you to read a lot of Buddhist stuff tonight. This one that I always really liked about a, a bhikkhu, a monk named Kemaka. And the other bhikkhus thought that he was an arhat, completely enlightened. And it goes on some whole long story how they keep coming and talking to him and saying, you're an arhat. And he says, no, I'm not, back and forth. But the, the deal is, he says, I'm not, basically, because I still have this feeling of I am. And they said, well, what is it? He said, he said, friends, I do not speak of form as I am, rupa, part of the aggregates. But at the same time, I don't speak of I am apart from form. He says, I don't speak of feelings as I am, of perception, of volitional formations as I am, or of consciousness as I am. He says, friends, although the notion I am has not yet vanished in me, in relation to these five aggregates, still I do not regard anything among them as I am. You get that? It's like he doesn't think, form, perception, consciousness, volitional formations, moods, he knows this is not me, but at the same time there's some feeling of I am there. Can't you relate to that? And this guy, he's, you know, he's not just some schlump, you know, <laughs> he's like a very uh, seriously practiced bhikkhu. He says, suppose friends, there's the scent of a blue, red, or white lotus. Would one be speaking rightly if one would say the scent belongs to the petals or the scent belongs to the stalk? He said, no friends. So how would you answer it rightly? So answering rightly, one should answer the scent belongs to the flower. So too, friends, I do not speak of form as I am, nor do I speak of I am apart from form. He goes through all of those. So although the notion has not yet vanished in me in relation to these five aggregates, I don't regard anything among them as this I am. Even though a noble disciple, when they say noble as disciple, that means someone who has at least reached the first stage of awareness. When they use that word noble, that's what that means, at least. Even though a noble disciple has abandoned the five lower fetters, okay, he's passed the first stage. Still, in relation to the five aggregates subject to clinging, there lingers in him a residual conceit, I am, a desire, I am, an underlying tendency, I am, that has not yet been uprooted. I can really, really just like not relate to the five lower fetters being gone. No, I'm not saying that, but just <clears throat> to that subtle, like sense, like a perfume, you know, the scent of a flower. Just this conceit, this underlying tendency, I am—you know, kind of floats around, <laughs> and you can't quite pin it down. The five aggregates subject to clinging. The point I want to make here is how clinging is so because all of this residual conceit or sense of I am arises because of clinging. And so that's why clinging is always the middle, you know, that kind of core teaching of freedom from clinging. So tonight I want to talk about seeing through clinging in the arena of the attitude of our heart and mind. Working with the second step of the Eightfold Path, which is wise intention, wise attitude. So the direct response, the purification of the the tendency, the reflex action you could say of clinging, because it seems like that. And by clinging we mean not only clinging for the pleasant, but you know, wanting the unpleasant to go away. So the, like clinging to not being, right? So it covers both of those. It's kind of like a reflex action. So the direct response is Panya sees through attachment to views, that's wisdom. But Panya turned on to clinging, clear seeing, we begin to see the seductive and delusional nature of clinging. And the natural response is this shift, this purification of our attitude, you say, where we put our trust, but of the natural response, the attitude of heart and mind, from one of greed, wanting, not wanting, to that of non-greed, of a natural renunciation. <clears throat> and this is a uh, this inner attitude, this purification, is something that we can actually include in our practice through the. Uh, Method is really, but the idea, the realm, of giving attention to renunciation. So renunciation is both an expression of the spaciousness, the coolness, the peace of the, the fire of greed and clinging having gone out. And it's also a kind of a, a, a structure, a form of practice that we can cultivate purify the tendency of clinging. So uninvestigated, uninvestigated, and even partially investigated, what's interesting is you look and see for yourself. Don't believe what I say, but what I see is that our notions are kind of uninvestigated, superficial notions about both of these two attitudes, about clinging and about renunciation, are both, the kind of backwards in a way. Like that clinging, you know, not if we think about it rationally, but the way we act is that clinging's gonna bring us happiness. Clinging and wanting and getting things is a way of happiness. Renunciation is kind of dour, unpleasant, a penance at best, but certainly not very joyful and nothing that we particularly wanna hang out with. Two things from the Buddha in this way, one about He says, monks, this is, what is the noble truth about the origin of suffering? Just this, his answer, just this craving, which brings renewal of being, and which is accompanied by pleasure, by lust and emotion, and finding delight, now here and now there. Namely, the craving for sensual pleasure, the craving for being, the craving for non being. This is called the origin of suffering. What I like about in this, in this particular context is he points out that craving, which is accompanied by pleasure and lust and is finding delight now here and now there. That's the way I think when we don't really investigate, that's how we relate to craving. Oh, delight over here, delight over there. This doesn't work anymore, never mind, delight over here. And that is superficially what we notice, what is kind of feeding the um, reflex action to go to clinging as a, a strategy for happiness, this finding of delight. You say that's the gratification in clinging. There is pleasure, brings delight. The danger, of course, is it doesn't last, and the escape is the abandonment. Now, in terms of the way that we view renunciation, that's kind of upside down to what the real experience of it is when we open into that that real renunciation of attitude, which is freeing, which is so spacious. This is, again, from the sutta. The Buddha... Uh, um, uh, Tapusa, the householder, was talking to Ananda and he asked Ananda these questions and then Ananda took him to the Buddha. And so Tapusa sits down and uh, Ananda says, Tapusa here said to me, Venerable Ananda, we are householders who indulge in sensuality. We delight in sensuality. We enjoy sensuality. We rejoice in sensuality. (laughs) For us... Indulging, delighting, enjoying, and rejoicing in sensuality, renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. In other words, that's not, not attractive, right? Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of the young monks leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm, seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people, this issue of renunciation, right? So can you relate to that? Maybe you're not rejoicing in sensuality, but here's that little piece of, what what about, you know? Renunciation means I can't have anything. The Buddha's answer is interesting. So it is, Ananda. So it is. He didn't say, oh, this foolish man. He agreed with him. So it is. Even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisatta, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart did not leap up at renunciation. It did not grow confident, steadfast or firm, seeing it as peace. So we could cut ourselves some slack if he was even the bodhisattva at that time. The thought occurred to me, what is the reason, why doesn't my heart leap up at renunciation? Why doesn't it grow confident, firm or steadfast, seeing it as peace? And I thought, well, I have not seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. I have not understood the reward of renunciation. I have not familiarized myself with it. He's always just so straightforward and practical, you know? That's why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation. Of course, you can imagine he goes on and says that he did pursue those themes, and his heart did leap up at renunciation. Because, of course, when we really explore with just a clear heart and mind, without getting lost in our preconceived notions, clinging actually isn't such a purveyor of delight. Momentary, maybe. But if we really look, this is from Nisargadatta Maharaj. I know, I'll I'll read from the Buddha too. These are good, I just like this one. The state of craving blocks all deeper experience. Nothing of value can reveal itself to the mind that knows exactly what it wants. Can anybody here relate to that in your meditation practice? The mind of clinging is narrow, restricted, limited. The Buddha says this over and over. Nothing can reveal itself to the mind that knows exactly what it wants. That's the danger in craving. The Buddha often used images, really strong fire images, about the burning of craving. You know the fire sutta where the eye is burning, the eye contact forms are burning, and they're aflame. I'm not gonna read that one, but basically he's saying, all our senses, all forms, Contact is all burning with passion, burning with aversion, burning with delusion. It's not a kind of like, oh well, you know, let's just see how it goes. Kind of image. It's like we are burning. And here's another where he describes. He's describing clinging. Actually, the name of the sutta is clinging. The blessed one said, "In one who keeps on focusing on the attractiveness of phenomena." In the five aggregates, craving develops. And this is very important, I'll say it again later too. This is unwise attention. Focusing on the attractiveness of phenomena develops craving, and craving then, as craving as a requisite, develops clinging. From clinging as a requisite comes becoming. From becoming, birth, then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. You know that, right? The the chain of dependent origination. The origin of this entire mass of suffering and stress. Just as if a great pile, mass of fire of 30 or 40 cartloads of timber were burning, a giant fire, and into it, a person would time and again throw dried grass, dried cow dung, dried timber, so that the great mass of fire, thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. In the same way, one who keeps on focusing on the attractiveness, the allure of phenomena, craving develops within the whole chain of dependent origination. And it burns for a long, long time. So basically, it's not that the sense objects or any object is a problem. It's that craving is just throwing fuel on the fire. Craving itself is the fuel for the fire that keeps us going. Renunciation, actually, rather than being a sheer drop-off, rather than being a penance, rather than you know restricting and limiting our life. It's craving that restricts and limits and contracts consciousness, contracts the mind and heart. But renunciation, the inner attitude of non-greed, the inner attitude of simplicity, of contentment, that actually opens up the space to be really awake, of non-clinging, the coolness, mind and heart that's not burning with the fire of clinging. The spaciousness that actually allows for nature to reveal itself when the mind is not clinging. This is from Huang Po. This pure mind shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. But most people are not aware of it. And think that the mind is only the faculty that sees, hears, feels, and knows, blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, and knowing. They don't perceive the radiance of the source. That's clean, actually. We're blinded by our own sight. It's not the sight that blinds us. It's the clinging to it. it, is that looking outward, it's really the crux of our problem, the heart of our ignorance, that in the attachment to forms, to our seeing, to our hearing, really, to the forms, to the sound, to the meanings of our thoughts, to our emotions, to what's happening, to experience, there's this continual looking as a metaphor, you know, it's not looking in the eyes, but a continual turning of attention outward. Away from what Wang Po is calling the radiance, the natural radiance of heart and mind, whatever you want to say, but looking outward for completion, whether it's to pizza, whether it's to concentration, whether it's to enlightenment, whether it's to you know the person next to you being quiet—doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's to a different mental state, the looking outward isn't necessarily outward beyond this body. It's outward from just the resting at ease in whatever arises, the looking outward that's fueled by craving, by clinging It's really the heart of our problem, as if somehow perfection is outside of ourselves. Wang Po, this is the rest of the Wang Po. This one mind, this pure mind, is the Buddha. And there is, now listen to this, he says, there is no distinction between Buddhas and ordinary beings except that ordinary beings are attached to forms. By forms is all of the experience. Ordinary beings are attached for forms and thus seek for Buddhahood outside of themselves. By this very seeking, they lose it. And that seems to me really the heart of the conundrum. But it's radical, it's not give up some of the seeking but hold on to this one, you know. Any tiniest little looking outside, we lose the recognition of the pure mind. That's the clinging. You see how, how pervasive, how subtle it is. And as we all know, just saying, okay, I get it, clinging's no good, I think I'll stop now. You know? No. So, in terms of looking at renunciation as a quality of mind of heart, and in small ways, large ways, whatever, playing with, practicing an active kind of renunciation, it's just another way of changing the channel from the constriction of clinging to the spacious coolness of non greed of renunciation. It's a movement of deep compassion for ourselves and not of penance, of punishment, of negativity. Real renunciation is a joyful opening experience. Just a state of mind comes and goes like anything. So uh, So really, when we think of renunciation, rather than thinking of it as a a giving up, it's more about learning to renounce this fruitless quest of looking for peace for something outside of here and now. The way um, Sogyo Rinpoche, the purpose of meditation is to introduce us to that which we really are pure awareness which underlies the whole of life and death. In the stillness and silence of meditation we glimpse and return to that deep inner nature that we have so long ago lost sight of amidst the busyness and distraction of our minds. Meditation is bringing the mind home. That's really how I think of just opening to the moment of putting down the craving, just renouncing the craving in any one particular moment. It's bringing the mind home, withdrawing this looking elsewhere for peace, for wholeness, because it's the looking elsewhere that actually hides the wholeness. But it's such, such a deep, deep habit We really rely on it. And I think at some point almost everyone I've talked to here, and I see to myself all the time, we see through many, many, many moments of reaching outside or clinging to something, whether it's a particular outside sense object, whether it's to a particular state of mind, whether it's wanting things to be a certain way, or suffering, we see it, we really see through it. And then it may really be peaceful, spacious, open for a while. But some little other, something comes in the mind or in the experience and that that really deeply ingrained reliance on clinging, reliance on the idea, we don't even have it consciously, that this is what, something has to be different for peace, for freedom whether it's the sitting has to be different, this thought has to be different, my experience has to be different. And as soon as that comes in, there's clinging. Clinging might be in the form of pushing away. And it's so easy for us, and even when, especially when it's subtle, not to to kind of overlook that attitude of craving and get a little bit focused on the thing that we're craving or pushing away. That's looking away. Even when it's something like a mood, we're involved in, but oh, there's disappointment. What does that mean? We're trying to think, looking away right there. It's so subtle. But it doesn't mean we're renouncing life or renouncing experience or even renouncing sense objects. As Geshe Raptin says, that having great compassion for yourself is the same as renunciation because we're renouncing the delusion. The attachment that keeps one bound to samsara. So what I'm talking about here renunciation is really this inner attitude, just a willingness to notice the attachment. And you can't necessarily stop it but we can at least renounce buying it wholeheartedly. And the inner motivation of renunciation is, I think, is my opinion, more important than the outer form. The outer form can support us. And I'll talk about that some. But I know it's possible to live very simply or to be practicing very austerely. I know it's possible to be an ordained person and be completely filled with attachment to the form with pride or arrogance or complete self-judgment, which is really the same thing, one or the other. It's possible, although it is hard, to be living a completely immersed worldly life and not be clinging. It's harder, it is harder, just because stuff happens so fast. But it's really all about inner attitude, what's in the mind, that's noticing. So as I was saying, we get so habituated to looking away from, almost like one of the ways it feels is, is um, something will make me feel happy when things are unpleasant. But sometimes when things start to get spacious and quiet, that sense of, again, it's a superficial sense of, of an emptiness, of something lacking, of something needing for completion, and looking out for that. And it's a reflex habit, you know? Whether it's for sense experience, you know, just the five senses, whether it's to mental experience, emotion, whether it's to, as I talked about the other night, ideas and views, views of self. It doesn't really matter what to. So our practice of renunciation is really a conscious choice for our happiness, and it's a conscious choice to kind of break this habit to consciously see what the mind is doing and the constriction and the burning that clinging brings and the peace and the space and the joy that a moment of renunciation can bring. It is, it is hard because it's such a habit for our mind to face away from itself and things happen so fast. This is Ajahn Chah. He's talking about the flood of sensuality. Kamoga, the flood of sensuality. He says, we are sunk in sights, sunk in sounds, in smells, in tastes, in bodily sensations, in mental activity. We're sunk because we look only at externals. We don't look inwardly. And there's so many. They happen so fast. As Sokani Rinpoche goes on to say, our mind faces away from itself. Our attention, our mind, bends towards whatever we experience. Sight, sound, smell, taste, texture, mental experience. Our mind leans toward it. The attention is completely caught up by what's happening, and then we get into thoughts about it, the future, the past, the associations you know, and then we're gone. Out of that comes views. But it's this tendency to lean out And then how that leads even more to craving is that unwise attention that I spoke about. And play with this in your practice. When we notice something pleasant, whether it's an image in our mind, something pleasant we're eating, a pleasant emotion, a pleasant sitting, doesn't matter what, the unwise attention, this is what the Buddha said is what fuels, throws the fuel under the craving, is really focusing on how attractive this thing is. That's different from the pleasant. Really noticing pleasant vedana. that's just pure mindfulness. It's more like, wow, this really tastes good. This is really so smooth on the tongue. You know, that kind of, this is really gratifying. I really like it. Unpleasant, of course, that's easier to see. When you're annoyed at someone, the mind just keeps going back to those annoying things about that person every time. You can see it more easily. I can see that one more easily anyway. Each time the mind goes back to what's wrong with that person, you get a little more annoyed. You get a little more annoyed. Well, it's the same with the pleasant. They're both unwise attention, throwing fuel on the pleasant object and the gratification. So I'm using simple sense experiences, you know, like food but try a really smooth, light sitting. And you're aware of it, and we're noticing, oh yeah, this is nice, this is pleasant, but there's this, hmm, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. This is, I'm just really seeing the rapture now. This is just really, and we keep focusing subtly just how nice this is. That's free. we don't see the clinging in the background. We think, I'm really immersed in the beauty of this experience, you know? Just play with how that happens. I mean, you'll know. We know, we don't always know how we got there, but we know that craving was being fed sooner or later, right, when it hits us back in the face. And those are the times when we don't think craving is finding delight now here and now there. We think, wow, I was mindful. I was doing it right. How come it went away? And then we hear ourselves and go, well, I know it's supposed to go away. Everything's impermanent. I really know that, but something's wrong. There's something I'm doing wrong because... And then we'll find some other rationale or some other reason, you know, because we can't really acknowledge. We're just clinging to that was really nice and I really liked it. I, you know, sense of me. Just play with that. It's unwise attention. We do it all the time, and get led into whole worlds of papancha of action. Like an example, once I was sitting um, in a beautiful place in South Africa, and I came out one morning right at dawn, and there was this big row. It was really beautifully landscaped of iris bushes, and this one morning right at dawn, they'd all bloomed. It was really exquisite in my memory. I mean, you know, the memory is years ago very subtle, lavender and white, extremely beautiful. And I came out, ah, oh, beautiful. You see, renunciation doesn't mean we can't appreciate the beautiful. Renunciation doesn't mean, oh, no, don't look at that. But renunciation means renouncing the clinging and really bringing mindfulness wisdom, satipanya, right to that moment of sense contact. That's the place for renunciation. Well, I didn't do this at that point. Wow, aren't they beautiful? They're so beautiful. The pleasant feeling in my body, I'm all liking that. They're so beautiful. And then, it, you know, clinging is going on because it leads to papancha of mind and proliferation of action. My mother would love to see these. She's such a gardener. I wish I had a camera, but I don't. But maybe my friend sitting over on the other side does have a camera. I ended up running around the place, looking for my friend, bothering him on his retreat, getting his camera, trying to take a picture. Which, of course, when you look at the picture, it doesn't show anything, you know, it just shows some green leaves. Well, I wasn't appreciating the beauty of those irises anymore. I was running around, you know, like a nut, trying to hold on to it. That's just simple, but that's how. The craving leads to complexity, leads to papancha, makes our lives so complicated. The renunciation isn't, I'm never looking at a flower again. The renunciation isn't cut down all the irises so we don't, you know, God forbid, get tempted. It's bringing in satipanya, mindfulness wisdom, right at that point of contact. Oh, it's beautiful. You feel the energy going out. Or it's awful to feel the energy recoiling. Oh, it's like this. That's really the essence of wise attention, of renunciation right at the point of contact, understanding it. This is the Buddha. For some people, contact the point where sense plus object meet. If you've been right there, that point of seeing. The eye, the iris is seeing is enthralling. Contact is enthralling. And so these people are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But others come to understand their sense activity. And because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize total calm. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It doesn't sound so harsh or kind of penance or a restriction of life. Restraint at the sense doors. First is satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom at the point of sense, contact. When we're able to do that, great. You know, it doesn't have to expand any further into clinging into papancha. In that moment, that's a renunciation of the clinging, of the looking outside, of the looking elsewhere for completion. That's something that the space... The structure of a retreat, the simplicity of a retreat helps us do. All of you have chosen to come here. It's a huge form of sense restraint of renouncing complexity, renouncing having things your way, renouncing getting the meals you want, renouncing a lot of things, you know, being with your family, whatever, to be here. It's not that all the things we're putting away to come here are bad, and that those things are keeping us from freedom. Of course not. But the, the strength of our trust in clinging and looking outside is so deep, and it rises so quickly. And as Ajahn Chah says, we're so sunk in this flood of sensuality, this flood of experience, I mean, even on retreat, it's it's not as much, but there's still so much going on, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, you know. That's always going on. But there's so much, especially in our daily lives, that that's why the sense of renunciation as an outer form, often when we say renunciation, people think right away of it as an outer form, whether it's taking rogues or whether it's just renouncing work and busyness for a while to come on retreat. So as I think I'm making the point, I'm not thinking renunciation is the outer form, but outer form and structure is extremely helpful to give us the space to explore. The burning of clinging, the coolness of renunciation. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, things are so busy and loud, just shut the windows once in a while. You don't have to let every wind come blowing through your house, you know? It's not that we hate the world. It's not that we're shutting out the world. But simplifying just gives us a lot more possibility to notice what's going on. And I know you all know this. None of you would be here if you didn't know it. I'm just kind of reinforcing stuff that we already know. It's like clear the decks. Appreciate the simplicity. But the simplicity itself is meaningless if we're not using the space it creates to really look at what's going on in this mind and heart when we come at that point of contact. So how much form, how much simplicity we want, that's personal. Something for each of us to explore and maybe changing as we go through our lives. But it's really what helps us be more present at this point of contact. So with Satipanya, we just meet what's happening and we don't concoct a whole world out of craving, out of clinging. And I, I know you know what I mean. But just later, just think back over how many worlds has your mind concocted today based on contact You know, contact with a sight, contact with some thought. How many different, incredibly strong personality views have you created in your mind today just based on an unpleasant thought that came up? Based on not liking the way your breath felt? Or maybe a really beautiful, they come, they go. All we have to do is watch it. But you see how fast, how much contact there is. It really, really can help to simplify. It gives us space to recognize what the mind is doing. And the conscious renunciation of outer form, say the conscious putting down, take, for example, the eight precepts. Not that people should do it. But one of the things that it can do is I've I've made the renunciation of outer form I'm not going to eat in the evening. So... When I'm on eight precepts, like I'm sitting in Burma, you're just on eight precepts. It's easier actually when everyone's on it and they're not putting out tea, I must say. It's a lot easier. But you just watch what comes up in the mind. So hunger comes up, so what? It doesn't really matter. You just watch it. What you put down is that clinging. You're gonna do something about it. And it really doesn't matter. I I really mean it. You're hungry, go, I'm hungry tonight. Okay, the hunger's like this. There's no, I've got to fix it. I've got to do anything. There's no clinging. So hunger, not hunger. You feel weak, you feel fine. It doesn't matter if there's space. There's coolness. There's no burning in the mind. That's just a simple example. Sure, at first, with some outer forms of renunciation, the mind kicks and screams, you know. It's I don't want to do this. No, don't take it away. I'm going to be so, you know. If I don't have that, I don't want to live without that. Well, most of us have something, maybe more than one or two somethings that uh, fall into that category. And it could be, sometimes it's something, you know, really banal that you're, like, too embarrassed to admit to anyone, you know. Like, you know, often when I go to Asia, like, it's just some little thing. I'm not going to say what little thing. Things I just have to take, you know. I don't need this, but no, I've got to have it. Sometimes it's not banal, and we might not even be able to say what it is to ourself because it's much closer to home. A certain sense of ourselves, a certain personality trait that we hold to or a memory or a, a way that we relate to the past or whatever it might be, a particular experience. Sometimes it's a fear of something we don't even have, but you don't want to give up the possibility that maybe someday you're going to have that. You know? Just watch. Where is the moment? No. Not this. Not this. It's kicking and screaming. And then realize it has nothing to do, the problem has nothing to do with having or not having that thing or that state or that sense of yourself. It's only the problem is the clinging. Renouncing the clinging that keeps us bound to samsara. Again, we get so focused on having or losing the thing or the idea or the sense of ourselves. we're looking outside again. jumping over, we're overlooking the attitude of mind of heart. No, no, I need this. I need, need this. this. Oh, feels like this, needing. And in that moment, we've shifted to the wise intention of renunciation. We've put down the clinging in that moment, just for that moment, and we discover we're already home. So... I mean, there's the larger renunciation of form in this particular tradition of people who take robes, nuns and monks. I myself lived for about a year as a, uh, a precept nun in Thailand. And it's true, my mind was kicking and screaming for a good two months. And uh, everything that came in my vision, aversion, aversion, and I mean, it was my choice, right? No one held a gun to my head. But it really, the mind, you know, doesn't just say, yes, the coolness of renunciation, I'm so happy. But by the end of that time, you know, I'd adjusted to the life in Asia, I'd adjusted to a lot. I felt like everything was wonderful. But the simplicity of that life really suited me. And the sense of space in my heart, in my mind, the sense of ease, a sense of joy. Of course, I probably exaggerate it in retrospect, you know, we can't trust our memories. But I do know it's true, that I was really happy the last few months of that time. And it's given me a really strong appreciation of the beauty and power of simplicity externally to just reinforce the possibility to recognize the simplicity internally. Again, it's not that we have to have the simple external, it's just easier to turn around and bring the mind home. Or recognize it's really already at home. So just have a look for yourself. The mind does kick and scream, like Tapusa the householder said, we rejoice in sensuality, we don't even like to think about renunciation. But that's because you don't know what it is. You don't know how happy it really is. But I think also why monks and nuns are really so honored and respected in Buddhist countries is by uh, kind of traditionally the householders really uh, have a great respect for the level of external renunciation that's required and the longer you live like that in some ways the bigger the renunciation the harder it is for me I knew I wasn't going to live like that all my life you know so there's a way in the back of I don't have this now and that's fine and craving doesn't come up but you have the little You know, the little out in the back of the mind, but I know next year, so it's not like I've given it up forever. You know, I didn't have to look at that. Although that's just a thought, because who knows what's going to happen the next moment. In some ways, our practice, just our moment-to-moment mindfulness, samadhi, whichever one you are doing practice, each moment that you simply come out of a fantasy, and feel the sensation in the foot. Each moment that you notice, disappointment is taking you away. Oh, disappointment is like this. You come out of the identification, out of the wanting, and you just are aware with mindfulness. Each moment that we come out of a story, that we come out of a criticism, out of a space out, and just, oh, this is what's happening right now. In a way, each, each moment of that is the hugest renunciation of all. Renouncing in that moment all your self images, your self ideas, your holding to fantasy, your constructions, your concoctions, your sakaya ditti. Just for that moment, it's like, ah, just this. In that moment, just for that instant, you've put down all clinging, all looking outside, all feeling of incompleteness and needing something else, all sense of self. Ah, just sensations of pressure. Tightness, calling it breath, feeling of self-judgment is like this. I know it's so simple. It's like yeah, fine, right. The next moment, okay. The habit of clinging arises again. The concocting of you, concocting a story, it arises again. That's okay. But notice those moments of renunciation. We're already home. It's not that we got rid of something and created pieces is that we just turned around and saw, Oh, pieces are already here, and I'm not lost in clinging, and I'm not feeding that fire with cow manure. <laughs> That's what it feels like usually this cow manure. All right. Anyone can renounce things, people, places, or lifestyles. Okay, we're already at a high bar here, right? Anyone can renounce that. But only a true renunciate renounces interest in her own mind, renounces her ideas, her beliefs, hopes, conditioning, her wounds, her defeats, her victories, her past and her future. That's the moment of true renunciation. Just renouncing the clinging, because in the moment, there's no past or future, victories, wounds. They're all thoughts. They're all imaginings. Just that pureness of presence. That's the moment of no enunciation. This is what we can practice. In the mindfulness practice, or samadhi too, you just come back to the breath. Without clinging, without aversion, you just put down the craving, the attachment that binds you to stories or wanting it, here you are. And we can also use it in terms of specific forms. Like if you notice you're really getting caught over and over in a particular thing, you might experiment with putting it down. Really look at how renunciation brings space to the heart, to the mind. You might notice... See if this is true for you, how when when clinging is getting strong, when we're uncomfortable, how when the mind hasn't quite gotten quiet, something's disturbing it, how quickly the tendency is in the mind to fill up the space. So like when you notice, often notice the ending of a thought, quick, get back to the breath, right away. Not just, oh, just, okay, that's thought, it's over just space, so no, do something, something, do something. You walk out, and you're just walking, and like, oh, look at the bulletin board, go do something. Oh, I have this 15 minutes, and I just walked, I'm not ready to sit, it's gonna be lunch, I gotta do something. So you read the bulletin board again, you read the back of the toilet bowl cleaner again, you go in and, you know, wash your hands, you go and do something. Or even in the sitting, nothing's really happening. You're just there. And it's, not, it's not like a nothing happening that you can feel good about. It's just nothing's really happening. So we have to do something to fill up that space. Just notice that tendency. What is it you're drawn to do? What do you get involved in? What do you get caught up in? Experiment with putting it down. Don't read if that's what your thing is. Don't look at the bulletin board but more than once a day if that's what your thing is, you know? If 17 cups of tea is your thing and really you're gagging on it, you don't want any more tea, but there's nothing else to do. Put down the tea, you know? If it's looking at other people, how much do we look at other people? And for what? Don't judge it, but notice the wanting to look. Notice when you look and notice what's the effect. How often does looking at other people really make you happy? Not too much, (laughs) not too much. Just notice that, but remember that renunciation is a path of joy. It's not that the problem is in the forms, in the externals, or in our moods, or in anything. The Buddha, I is not the fetter of forms or form of the I but whatever desire or passion arises in dependence on I in the form, that is the fetter. If the sense door, the I, for example, or the sense object, the form, or eating and food, whatever, was the fetter, was the chain, then this holy life for the ending of Dukkha would not be proclaimed. Wouldn't be possible. There is an I in the blessed one. Right? He's saying, I have an I. The Blessed One sees forms with the eye, yet no desire or passion arises in the Blessed One. So the Blessed One is well released in mind. But you get the sense forms aren't the problem. The eye isn't the problem. Renunciation is trying to cut off life, cut off perception, cut off experience. That's not renunciation, that's aversion. The fear. Renunciation is that ah. Seeing sense contact, satipanya, and just putting down that looking anywhere else, looking outside to any degree for completion, for fulfillment. It's really a great path of joy and space and coolness. And it requires a kind of surrender, doesn't it? A surrender to just the truth of this moment. A total surrender of our beliefs, our expectations, our desires about practice, our ideas of what, who we are, of where we're going, a surrender even of our ideas of freedom, our ideas of liberation. This is just on a moment-to-moment level. I'm not talking about just for that moment. We absolutely surrender all the concepts, self-concepts, expectation, and just land completely at this moment of contact. Without the mind moving out in any way, then the natural radiance reveals itself. Can we trust that enough? Just the more we recognize the burning nature and the futility, really, of this searching outside, or the peace that's already here, the more the heart and mind naturally inclines to the spaciousness, the coolness of letting go, of non-greed, or as Ajahn Amaro calls it, the peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and heart. So can we just rest in the peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and heart? That's what renunciation opens us up to. So I just want to end this little poem from one of the nuns in the time of the Buddha. Mita Kali was her name. It says she got turned to the Dharma when she heard the Buddha give a discourse on the Satipatthana Sutta. And it says up until this point in her life, she had the reputation of being a very difficult person angry and self-centered. But when she heard the Satipatthana Sutta, it changed her, changed her, she put a great sense of commitment into her life as a nun. Of course, she became an Arhat, I mean, otherwise you didn't get your poem in this. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, so the outer renunciation, I was still greedy for possessions and praise I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done.